Welcome back to iGen Politics, formerly known as Intergenerational Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi, a freshman at UCLA, the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden, and also one of the co-hosts of this podcast. And I'm Jill Weinbanks, Victor's co-host and the author of The Watergate Girl. I'm also the former general counsel of the U.S. Army, where I served in the Pentagon. And I'm wearing a special pin today for Secretary Miller, and that is the highest award that a civilian can get from the Army. Uh, It's a little teeny thing. There's a big award with, you know, the metal thing and everything, but that's hanging on my wall. I'm also wearing a West Point uh, thing that I got for speaking at the 77 commencement address. So we are very happy to have you with us today. And uh, Victor, why don't you give some introductory remarks? Sure. Yeah. So It's clear that January 6th was one of the darkest days of our democracy when former President Trump took his big lie about an election rife with fraud to its zenith by going to the Ellipse in Washington, D.C. There, he told his audience to march to the Capitol and, quote, fight like hell to stop Congress from doing its constitutional duty to confirm the election results. That march delayed Congress from performing its constitutional duty and caused numerous injuries, multiple deaths, damage to the Capitol, and theft of property. Nearly five months later, our nation is still searching for answers with the FBI, Department of Justice, and state law enforcement working to hold those responsible for every aspect of the January 6th insurrection accountable, Um, from those who planned and caused it to those who damaged the Capitol and committed violence and death. Uh, Senate Republicans have now blocked the establishment of a bipartisan, independent 9-11-style commission intended to explore the events that precipitated the January 6th insurrection and provide recommendations to prevent another one from occurring. Joining us today is former Acting Secretary of Defense under President Trump, Christopher Miller. He was directly involved, of course, in the law enforcement response to the insurrectionists on January 6th. He had given um, us the opportunity to talk to him today about that day and the relationship between the former president's big lie and his words on the ellipse and the events that followed. Uh, including how law enforcement and the military responded to the events of the day. Christopher Miller served as former President Trump's acting Secretary of Defense from November 9, 2020, when his predecessor, Mark Esper, was fired for standing up to Trump until January 20, 2021, Inauguration Day, when President Biden became president. For that three-month period, um, and for the months prior to that, he was the director of the National Counterterrorism Center, a position he took um, after 27 years as a Green Beret commanding the 5th Special Forces Group in Iraq and Afghanistan and many other deployments. He has also been a civil servant and a defense contractor. Thank you very much for being with us today and full disclosure for our audience, um, your sister and her husband, your brother-in-law, were my neighbors until just a few weeks ago when they moved back home to Iowa. And uh, until then, we were friends. So I just wanted everyone to know that background. Jill, it, Jill, it doesn't matter anymore because they moved. So there's no conflict of interest. I just want to be clear to go forward. They moved. So I never, ever was at their house looking uh, over at your house when uh, the lights would go on in your living room, indicating <laughs> that you were doing a live shot for MSNBC. Not So no conflict of interest at all. Victor and Guy did, but you didn't. It's true. So, um, Victor, why don't you ask the first question of Secretary Miller? 
Sure. Yeah. So let's begin our conversation with the months leading up to the 2020 election and election night. Um, you were the director of National Counterterrorism Center at the time, reporting to the uh, director of national intelligence, John Radcliffe. Um, you heard President Trump attack the legitimacy of the elections. And I wonder, given your job at the time and the intel that you had um, that surely countered his statements, how did you feel listening to then President Trump's words that night and before the election? I need to correct the record. Uh, I was not the commander of the 5th Special Forces Group. I was a battalion commander. There are three battalions in the 5th Special Forces Group. I commanded one of the battalions in Iraq and uh, overseas. So because anybody, if there's any any Green Berets listening or special operators, they will be texting me saying I claim credit for something I did not know. What was your question again? So so we're just going to go ahead and be like hyper political on this show because I'm a national uh, security professional. And uh, what I really was hoping that we talk about is about the military's role on January 6th. Now, if we want to go down the, the path of like asking all these questions, I, I'm just going to I got to tell you, folks, uh, this is a really difficult time in America, and uh, I'm sitting here alone and unafraid at my house, which will be undisclosed because uh, I get regular threats against me. Every time I say something, either 74 million or 81 million Americans are automatically going to be very upset with me. And then there's some elements, some very radical elements on both sides that uh, go out of their way to harass my family and harass me. So this sounds like cliche, but I said this in my testimony uh, recently when I was on the Hill. This isn't a joke. And, you know, frankly, if we're going to go down that road, we, I'll, I'll tell you, what did I think? Hey, you know what? Politics is politics. My, my purpose and my calling is to defend the American people. Now, you can go ahead and give me some talk. Well, don't you think that uh, domestic affairs matter about overseas relations? OK, we can. I'll just keep we can keep talking about that. So your question was, what did I think about the political uh, nonsense that occurs in this country right now? That's a threat to America. Uh, I probably feel very much the same way as a lot of Americans that are very concerned about the future of our country, but yet very optimistic because it shows like this that we're going to have an honest conversation and hopefully we're actually going to share our ideas in a nonpartisan way so that we can fix these doggone problems in America. And I want to curse, but I'm not going to on your show because I want you to keep a, at least a PG rating. But so if we want to talk about that, keep asking, Victor, and I'll just keep harking on the fact that that's not that's not my role. That wasn't my role in the administration. My role was to uh, support and uphold the Constitution of the United States, as well as protecting America from all enemies, domestic and foreign. I mean, if you guys are just going to go down this bullshit, I'm not going to I'm, I'm telling you, I'm not going to. I, my, my family's at risk right now. And if you're going to go down there and just going to try to make these goddamn headlines, I'm not going to do this. So we you know, I, 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 I did this as. It, you know, I went up there on the hill uh, without subpoena, hope, hoping that we would have an honest discourse about this stuff. But if you're just going to go down this road, I, I really have no, nothing to add because I'm trying to f help fix problems. I thought that's what we were going to try to do. I thought we were going to do third way forward. I thought we were going to think about how do we solve these problems. And that's why I thought this show was really cool, was it's an intergenerational show. Jill, you saw the craziness of Watergate. You saw the craziness coming out of Vietnam. You saw the church hearings. You saw the Pike Commission. And now, Victor, you're living this thing. And, you know, I was like, oh, this is going to be great. And then we start off with this. I'm like, I got to tell you, I'm really not interested. And so if we want to do that, let's just kind of kill it now, because I'm not 
it's going to be too controversial and it's just going to be really heinous for my family. So I'm really not interested in doing it. First of all, let me assure you, we do not want to do anything that's going to endanger you or your family. And what we do want to get is what are the facts? What, you know, give you a chance to explain yourself. You have been criticized for a number of things. I could, I could care less about being criticized. Like you ha- say... Bull- bullshit. I went up there on the hill and just get my ass handed to me. Nobody gives a crap about... Th- the Senate did a really good job in their side. Nah, you, you guys started with this... You guys started with this provocative bullshit. But if that's what you want to do, let's let's keep going and I'll calm down because I know how to do this. And I'll just give you some sound bites and and, and we'll, we won't advance the... We won't advance our joint. I thought we had a joint cause on this to try to do something positive. Well, we definitely want to do something positive. But I, I also I don't think it's unfair to say you had more information than I had, more information than Victor had, more information than I mean, you were in an area with intelligence. So it just I didn't handle election intelligence. I handled counterterrorism intelligence. I didn't deal with election crap. So tell me what counterintelligence intelligence includes. Now, counterterrorism is a, a separate, distinct field of the intelligence. It's not uh, counterintelligence, and it's certainly not the uh, intelligence. I didn't deal with foreign intelligence regarding uh, election manipulation, which frankly is already out there. I don't think there's anything else to be said about that. But. So, well, counterterrorism would include domestic terrorism threats? Sure. So uh, to me, this looks like a domestic terrorism event where you had American citizens who were trying to stop the certification of an election by what turned out to be violence. And I'm just, you know, I I know you can't reveal. um, Yeah, that's that's. Domestic terrorism was in the portfolio when I was the director of the National Counterterrorism Center. And when I was uh, the director, uh, the senior director, special assistant, the president for counterterrorism at the National Security Council, we wrote the counterterrorism strategy for the United States. For the first time in the history of the counterterrorism strategy, we recognized that domestic terrorism was an increasing threat needed to be addressed, as opposed to in the past, we simply talked about uh, Islamist terrorism. We're like, no, terrorism is terrorism. We have to talk about all of this. Now, the, sometimes that's forgotten in the in the current narrative that uh, we were somehow were complicit in this, but we recognize that. Uh, but when you want to talk about collection of intelligence against domestic terrorism, that's the role of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And uh, it's a very complex issue, as you know, from your time uh, in in, uh, in the legal field. So, I mean, you know, yeah, we tracked it, we followed it and uh, recognized that it was an increasing threat. Well, you've raised an interesting point that maybe would be worth um, our audience hearing, which is the difference between the FBI's role in domestic terrorism and what your role was. And I, if I remember correctly, in that role, you designated certain things as threats and that included domestic terrorism as a threat. Uh, so can you answer both those things? First of all, am I correct in, in your designation of domestic terrorism as a threat to America? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Terrorism's terrorism, period. 
doesn't matter if it's domestic or foreign. And and can you elaborate more on the difference between the FBI and your role in the military? Oh, yeah. The military doesn't collect domestic law enforcement. That's uh, domestic intelligence. We did that. As you recall, we, you know, we did that in the 60s and 70s, and it was a wholesale violation of American civil liberties of enormous proportions. We had the church hearings. We had the Pike Commission, which uh, absolutely imploded due to the uh, so I wasn't surprised with the uh, charades that were up there in the House because it was like very past his prologue. Pike Commission completely collapsed when they were studying the uh, uh, at that time it was leftist uh, terrorist activity. And so uh, that, there was absolutely no way in the Department of Defense. And as long as I was there, we were not going to conduct intelligence activities against American citizens because it's absolutely unconstitutional and every American should be horrified if their military ever did such a thing again. Exactly. And there is the posse comitatus law, but I, I actually misspoke because I meant to say when you were working for the DNI. Um, yeah, we tracked domestic terrorism. The FBI had uh, had active operations and in intelligence collection uh, against those that uh, were were people that uh, were involved in domestic terrorism. That was your role right before the before coming to the Pentagon as the acting secretary? As one of many roles, there's active Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Well, Al-Qaeda and ISIS are related and other plots worldwide. So uh, we tracked all uh, terrorism activity worldwide. So and did you work in conjunction with the FBI? Or sure, yeah. Ter- okay, so... FBI's FBI's integrated into the National Counterterrorism Center. That was one of the lessons that was learned from uh, the September 11th, 2001 commission was that we needed to break down the wall. So uh, debt, you're in your intelligence shop. You you have FBI officers threaded throughout the organization to avoid that kind of brick wall. Okay, so um, let's go forward to when you get appointed um to be the acting secretary, had you met the president before that day? Sure. So, how- yeah, we killed bag killed Baghdadi. Uh, I was a head of counterterrorism at the National Security Council, and Bakr al Baghdadi, who was the head of ISIS, and had slaughtered thousands of people personally and been involved in just some heinous acts towards Americans. Uh, that was the time I met the president that night uh, when the operation went in to kill Baghdadi. Excellent. And um, so how did you find out that you were going to be nominated as the acting secretary? You're not technically nominated. You get a call and you're told to report to the White House. And when did that happen? That morning of uh, when Secretary Esper uh, left. And what was your conversation with him at that time? With who? The president? President. When you went to the White House? The president said, I'm I'm. Uh, going in a direct, different direction and uh, removing uh, Mark Esper, and I need you to go over and run the Pentagon. And you know that's kind of you know the West Wing show. You serve at the you know pleasure of the president, and I'd accepted a political position. I'd spent a career as a civil servant. I'd spent 27 years as a as a spe- as a infantry and special forces officer in the army, and then retired in 2014 and continued to serve uh, as a contractor and as a civil servant. And uh, made elected to accept the political appointment uh, 
in, I can't remember what year it was, 2019, very focused on Al-Qaeda, very focused. Uh, this war started in 2001. I was there for the start of the war. Frankly, uh, I'd been involved prior to that against bin Laden and had the opportunity to serve at different positions to continue to try to defeat Al-Qaeda. So uh, when the president called and uh, said, I was, you know, you don't get offered the position so much, you know, it's like, hey, I, there are only a handful of us that were eligible to take the position based on the fact that we were presidentially appointed and Senate confirmed. And uh, I was one of those people and was asked to serve in that capacity for the rest of the uh, Trump administration. Still, I can only imagine how, in a way, exciting and and terrifying it is to get a call to come to the White House. I've been, been, been in much worse situations. I mean, I mean, nobody's trying to kill. Well, people are trying to kill you now. But then uh, it was like, I've had people try to kill me. So it's like, you know, this is D.C. This is D.C. rules. This is bureaucratic, petty ass knife fight. And I can handle that all day long. I'm, you know, at the end of the day, it's about America and it's about trying to improve things and, and protect Americans. So I didn't I wasn't worried about that. And, and did you have any conversation with him about what your policies or? Um... Sure. Yeah, I was like, I completely, uh, completely support uh, President Trump's foreign policy goals of getting us out of these uh, forever wars and, uh, and getting us to a place where we're not in a state of perpetual war that's been occurred since, what, 1940? Well, technically, 1941, we've been in this perpetual state of war. And I think that's very unhealthy and inappropriate for America with the end of the Cold War. Uh, we had other, uh, ab you know, absolutely needed to defeat al-Qaeda, but I fully supported uh, getting out of Afghanistan, getting out of Iraq, getting out of Somalia and and coming home. I'm very strong at this point. I'm a neo-isolationist. I could change tomorrow. The world situation might change. But at this particular point, I think it's best for America that we come home. We re retool America. We get our act together and see how things happen overseas. It's a state of transition right now. And let's go ahead and uh, just kind of like hedge a little bit. Let's let's let things play out a bit and not overcommit. And, uh, you know, let's let's think about things a little more deliberately than just this knee jerk reaction that this that our foreign policy elite have been doing for way too long. And did you have any um second thoughts, or I don't know if that's the right description, but any pause uh, given the firing of your predecessor? Did that make you think twice before um, accepting the position? You take the, you take the King Schilling. I mean, it's kind of the thing in the middle. Uh, the way I was raised is, is selfless service. When you're uh, called to serve, you serve. You don't get to choose. It'd be really nice if you're, uh, you know, sunshine patriot, and you're like, oh, hey, man, that's a little rough right now. It's a really bad time for me. I think I'm just going to hang out at home. I had a great gig. I loved. I absolutely loved being the director of the National Counterterrorism Center. We we were doing such innovative things. We were just doing such exciting things. The workforce was miraculous. Young workforce, talented hungry, innovative. I was, I was so thrilled to be there. Uh, but you know what, when you take the job as a political appointee, when you get the call to move, it's kind of how it is. It's kind of like being at, at a major corporation. If they tell you like, Hey, guess what? You know, it's time for you to go take a, a tour in, uh, you know, sub-Saharan Africa. You're kind of like, okay. I mean, I've been collecting a paycheck from you for 20 years. I think that's how it works. So, uh, yeah, like, oh, I knew it was going to be easy. Come on. I mean, uh, 
I've got a little common sense. I'm from Iowa. I can't believe you're having me on. You guys from Illinois and all. I figured, you know, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to work out in your show because I'm from across the border. But of course, everybody from Chicago goes to the University of Iowa. So I feel like I'm basically a second citizen of uh, Chicago. But yeah, I mean, it goes without saying it was not going to be a an easy uh, just ride out the clock. And there are actually a lot of things we we're trying to do, like get the hell out of these wars. And then believe it or not, we really passionate about giving voice to members of the armed services, veterans and their families that haven't been heard. And, you know, that's my passion. And to be able to do that and then continue to continue uh, against Al Qaeda is like, OK, hey, new job. Let's go. That's the way the military works. Every year or two years, you change jobs. You don't get the check. It was just like, OK, whatever. New job. Let's go. So it sounds like you were really focusing on uh, foreign affairs. Um, yeah, it's the role of the Department of Defense. So you must have been surprised when you ended up having uh, a lot of your time spent on what became domestic terrorism and the January 6th events. Was that? Not, not, no, not surprised at all. Uh, if any foreign policy professional or national security professional knows the thing that you prepare for is not the thing that you're actually going to do. It's like, that's how the business works. You show up to work and you had this great plan for the day and then someone does something uh, overseas or domestically and you're like, okay, I guess that's a priority for the day. So no, I wasn't, wasn't bothered. I mean, very well attuned to domestic terrorism, extremely attuned to the role of the military in domestic affairs. And so now it's just like, yeah, it's what we do. Got it. And did you ever have a chance to talk to the president about the domestic side? About uh, domestic? I mean, what do you mean? You took over right on the heels of the election. So was there ever any discussion about the election? We were, no, no. I mean, I was a national security person. The political side, they have they have separate meetings. I don't go to those meetings. I, we had some serious international threats that were of great concern and to me and to the president. So, no, domestic stuff is not something we talked about. You've seen it in the public record. Spoke with the president. I can't remember what day it was. Um uh, before the sixth. And uh, he, he asked about, you know, our posture for uh, for January 6th. But no, it's not. We didn't talk domestic political stuff. That's not appropriate, nor the role of the secretary of defense. So what was that conversation that you're referring to? Had a very serious foreign threat that we had a long meeting on prior and on the way out for, you know, 30 15, 30 seconds, ask what's it look like for tomorrow? I think it was tomorrow. I, I can't, re I don't have my notes in front of me. Uh, and I just said, hey, got a request from DC Mayor uh, Bowser for National Guard support, which we're going to provide. He goes, okay. So in the day or days, at some point in the, we, we don't know the exact date, but prior to January 6th, you were planning on providing the support through the National yeah, Guard. Yeah. yeah, Mayor Bowser requested it. And uh, there's some weird stuff in D.C. because it's not a state, which has come up again and again in these discussions. Not my problem. You know, if you want to do a constitutional amendment or some sort of legislation change, I care less. I mean, not my problem. Uh, but cur at the, that current, currently and at that time, 
Obviously, a request for National Guard support had to be approved by the president. He had delegated that authority to me. So I approved the mayor's request as she wanted. She had very uh, strict stipulations about the use of the National Guard and size and force. And we looked at it very carefully. That's what the Department, Department of Defense, there's one thing that they do well, it's plan and look at things and analyze things and analyzed it and gave, gave her full support. So I, I know Victor wanted to ask about the letter that you, I'm sure you must have seen that was published in the Washington Post. Which one? I can't keep up. I mean, literally, that's why I think it's which one you got. You got the one where the people say that I was trying to uh, establish uh, neuter the National Guard so they couldn't be effective. Is that the one you're talking about, about the five restrictions that I placed on them? Well, I, I was actually referring to the letter that the 10 living secretaries of defense. Oh, that one. Oh, geez. What was up with that? What was on their mind? They didn't call me on that one, obviously. So, but you tell me. me. Well, Victor, do you want to ask some questions about that? Yeah. So I guess referring to that letter, I mean, did did you have any, did you read that letter at the time or did you have any reaction to that letter? Of course. I mean, it's pretty significant. We, you know, you wake up, you get up way too early. It's still dark out. And you're like, man, I got to go in there and do it again today. But, you know, that's your job, right? I mean, my parents raised me. Do your job. Just do your job. You know, Bill Belichick, right? Just do your job. So you might not want to go in there, but you go in there because we're from the Midwest, right? You, the three of us are the same way. Like, you show up. And, like, so what do you do? The first thing, I'd walk out, and, and I got all this security detail around my house, which is driving my family crazy. And, you know, I get pick up my paper, the Washington Post, and I walk in there, and I open it up, and I'm like, oh, man, you've got to be kidding me. This is going to – this is just not what we needed. And I have no idea why they did that. Why don't you ask them? They don't call me, uh, and I have not called them. And you're like, wow, you got – y'all took counsel of your fears. You know better than that. I mean, come on. Like, let's bring the temperature down a little bit. Like, we do not need former secretaries of defense, you know, taking counsel of their fears and playing into this, this doggone media political entertainment complex. I was absolutely horrified. Still am never going to get over that. I was like, you got to be kidding me. I, I have no idea, but I'm sure they have a very good reason for this. Oh, we were just concerned. Come on. You sat in that chair. Maybe they haven't sat in that chair in those circumstances, I argue. But they've been the, that chair when you're making life and death decisions. And you don't need a lot of people popping off, giving you uh, unwanted guidance. They could have called me and brought that up. But they decided that they would uh, go. Who who wrote that? I heard somewhere that, that someone else wrote it. Have you guys figured out who wrote that? I've been hearing a lot of rumors. I don't care. I'm over well, it. What rumors did you hear? I haven't heard anything. Hmm. <sighs> I, I think I heard that like the Cheney, I think, directed her father to, to gather maybe I think all the living defense secretaries. But um, I think that was the only thing I whatever. Um, so I guess fl- going forward in time to maybe the January 6th rally in terms of President Trump and what he was going to say, did, did you have any idea of what was going to happen on the January 6th rally? National security. Don't do domestic politics. Not a clue. I, can I ask one more question? Yeah. Listening to your answer on the other about the secretaries, I mean, I I feel your um, disdain. 
Disdain is a good word. I'll accept your word. But did it, did it actually end up influencing you in any way um, in responding on January 6th? Absolutely not. Because they were saying, you know, don't allow the military to be involved. And I'm just wondering, because Jill, 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 I get so upset because, you know, they led. I, it sounds cliche and trite, but for the heaven's sakes, our service men and women, you're supposed to call them service members now. So I, my my kids will get angry with me for saying service men and women. And I apologize for that. Our service members, you know, they from the day that they enlist they are, it's inculcated in there. It starts with their oath of allegiance to the constitution. And, you know, every, there are so many people that wanted me to go public and to remind, to remind our service members of their loyalty to the constitution. And I never did that. And I'll tell you why I didn't that. I didn't do that because I was raised to trust your subordinates. I was raised to trust your people. And for me to go public and go, hey, I just want to remind everybody to follow their oath their, to the Constitution, to me would have been the height of hypocrisy for me as a leader. And I'm not a commander anymore, but as a leader and a manager of the Department of Defense, I would have never have done that because that is disrespectful to those people that are serving our country. And I would never do that. And that's why I was so offended by those people. Like you led them and then you call into question their loyalty. What kind of leader are you right now? And so that's why I just fundamentally am so disappointed in that letter and how people have responded to this idea. There was Jill, Victor, people thought the armed forces were going to conduct a coup and overthrow the country. What kind of nonsense is that? That would never happen. That's not going to happen. Now, that's not the way we raise our military. And I'm telling you, what the heck? 7% of our population are veterans, 1% currently serve. We have got to bridge that divide. The thought that the American public considered that their armed forces would do something counter-constitutional is horrifying to me. And that's why, that's why I'm on your show right now. That's why I agreed to do this, because I want to help educate people to the goodness and the dangers of their armed forces. It, the most important decision this country makes is going to war. And you know how, you know, that the decision making the last war we just did that we just lost was atrocious. And I refuse my obligation to the next generation is not to do that again. And this is not some lost generation thing. I'm not claiming that. But I came home from Iraq in 2003, July 1st. And my family was gone and I just sat and I was so disappointed in our elected officials that we went, we conducted an unjust war. And I was involved in that. I said, I'll be darned if I'm ever going to do that again. So that's, that's, that's why I don't care about all the like, oh, you know, Miller's insane. I don't care about that because that's not what it's about. But, you know, there's got to be a narrative. Y'all, everybody has to create their narrative to, you know, Well, night, so. you know, having had the privilege of serving in the Pentagon and getting to know you did it. a lot of generals and, and service members 
back then it was still servicemen and women, but um, I came to respect the leadership and the intelligence and the planning. Uh, but you said something that I have to then ask a follow-up about because when you say about a coup, you do have Michael Flynn, a retired general, who clearly said, he's now trying to back away a little, but he said, I encourage a Myanmar-style coup for America. And so that's a little inconsistent with what, you, you know, I agree that that is the training. People are trained to obey only a lawful order and to obey orders, but to have loyalty and fealty to the Constitution. And then you have him saying that. So, you know, it makes me want to ask you, what's your reaction to something like that from General Flynn? Mike Flynn is a retired military officer. I won't speak for him. I think you bring up an extremely important point, Jill, and that's the role of retired senior officers in the political sphere. I'll give you an idea. I'm going to get a lot of hate mail from this one. Like, it's not appropriate. If if a retired military officer wants to enter the, mili- uh, the political arena, senior military officer, have at it. Give up your pension. Give up your uh, retired pay. Give up your disability. And give up your rank. And have at it. This is America. God bless you. You've decided to do this. So I think we really need to think about civil military relations, which is kind of the crux, I think, of your of your question. And like, that's just not appropriate to answer your question. I'm getting a lot of um, tweets, many, many tweets saying, why is he not being charged criminally? Why is he still getting a pension? And could he be court martialed? And I did a little quick research and it does look like court martial is possible for retired officers in limited circumstances. And it looks like that's the only way that he could lose his pension, uh, you know, have it taken away from him. Do you know anything more about that that you could enlighten us with? Jill, you were general counsel of the Army, which you've forgotten more about this than I'll ever know. And thanks for doing the research on that. That's very helpful. Uh, I was just thinking going forward, because I think we have to have a a further discussion as a nation about uh, the role of military officers in political uh, in the political space. So that's why I was just throwing up my idea. I hadn't thought about court martial. I'm sure that's on the books, uh, but way above my my knowledge base right now. But yeah, I mean, it's just like that's not appropriate. I mean, we've had you know General Eisenhower um, entered politics. Many uh, many former retired generals have been active. Uh, Colin Powell. Um, and have served admirably in both capacities. It's just this one episode with Michael Flynn seems to stand out in stark. Sure does. Yeah, and re- you know that you used to win a war. You got you kind of the quid pro quos. You became president. That's how it worked. We haven't won a war for a while, so maybe uh, maybe it's a moot point. So I'm sorry, but I interrupted your questions, Victor. I apologize. No, I, I'm just wondering because you, know, you you express your disdain for that Washington Post letter. I'm wondering if any of those tense uh, defense secretaries ever reached out for you and, and offered guidance during that time or or any advice about how to deal with the events um, of the last months of the administration. No. Okay. And v- Victor, you have to you have to understand the way DC works is, you know, 
I was a retired colonel. I was kind of a little unworthy and, you know, get painted with the brush as some sort of Trump loyalist. You, you read all that and people have heard that. So, you know, people, people from Iowa City, Iowa aren't supposed to end up in the E-ring in the Secretary of Defense's office, quite simply. And, you know, non-traditionalist. And, and so, and that's another problem we have, folks, is, you know, this idea that you have to have some superpower to understand the military and national security. Jill, you went in there and you experienced it and kind of this this kind of idea like, oh, you know, you haven't served, therefore you're unworthy of giving us advice. That's nonsense. And it, the system's designed that way. It's a self-protective system to to make sure that, and most professions do that, let's be perfectly clear. So I'm just not bad mouth in national security professionals. We see that across the board. You guys see it in your field, like, oh my gosh, you started out in a podcast and now you're at NBC. I don't know about that. Geez, you know, you didn't really like, I don't know about this Victor guy. Uh, so, you know, that's why I didn't, I didn't expect that I would have any of them reach out because, you know, I'm kind of the unwashed masses and they're like, oh, he's not worthy of our, of our uh, time. That's kind of my feeling. And what were your, and I'm not bitter at all. I care less, man. I'm just yeah. a student of the system. I don't care. I was, I was the guy in the chair and feel very, very comfortable and very confident in the things that, that we did there. So I, I'm not Believe me, this is not something I lose any sleep over. I care less. I mean, really. And what were your goals during those final months of the administration? I know uh, I've read some reports about Jonathan Swan kind of going over your three goals. Did you have any goals during those final months? Now, you know, I love the fact that they take my three goals, which were which were kind of true. Like, hey, there are only three. Th- the bar is really low. Is that what you're talking about? I, I, I kind of said it in cheekishly, but it was kind of true. Like the bar was really, really low. Like, Hey, like, uh, no military coup. Uh, number two is no major foreign war. And number three, let's not have American troops in the street beating up American citizens. And that was the bar. It was really low. We actually had really important things that we did and wanted to do. And one obviously was, I think, uh, you know, our special, one thing we did was, recognize that our veterans that had served at Karshikhanabad in Uzbekistan had been poisoned by toxic chemicals there, needed redress. So, you know, you're, you're kind of like, I, I finally got in this job and I was always the subordinate that was looking up going, man, if I, I can't believe they're not taking any of this seriously. They're all part of the problem. And then now you're the person, right? And I thought it would be the height of like, just absolutely cowardice of me if I got there and all of a sudden I started talking this way and, you know, started talking about the big picture. You have to understand the big picture. No, at the end of the day, you know, your workforce is your treasure. So to help out and get that remediated was critical. Gold star families, those that have lost loved ones in the war have, you know, it's a, it's the worst thing that ever happens in their life. And I always felt that we could do better in the Department of Defense. So that was another thing we took on. Another thing, so just FYI, so as we see the budget decline from $740 billion a year to $715 billion a year in the Department of Defense, you mark my words, I ask you all to pay attention to what they do with family support and what they do with our wounded warrior programs. Because what they're going to do is they're going to say, oh, the war's over. We don't need to spend so much on those now. Well, actually, now's the time we need to spend more money. 
And we, you know, maybe we need to back off a little on their on their silly high tech nonsense that, you know, some defense contractor is, is shilling on them. So that was the other thing we really wanted to do. I felt we I felt like we're not organized correctly for um our great power competition against China. And so we tried to do some things with special operations. And what we wanted to do was knit together all these, all these fields that currently are orphans in the Pentagon, cyber, space, information operations, special operations, security. Right now, they're all just kind of like orphans and they don't have a sponsor. And I'm like, this is the future of America and our strength artificial intelligence, machine learning, uh, you know, new uh, manufacturing technologies. Let's bring that together as opposed to being dispersed. Let's bring that together and let's give it the attention it needs. And let's give them some, let's give them some love because they're going to be critical going forward. And it's not going to be the F-35 and these great planes and all this stuff. Important. I got that. But that's not going to be the critical enabler that's going to help our nation, you know, protect our nation. So that was the other thing. And then, you know, 71,000 Americans, 78,000 this year, 71,000 Americans last year were killed by illicit drugs. Jill, I don't know if you had to deal with this when you were general counsel, but we're like the military was like, that's not a military mission protecting the border. And I'm not talking against illegal immigration. I'm talking against illicit narcotics coming up from the South or coming in from the West. It's like, hey, you know, that's we need to focus on near peer competitors. We're like, well, actually, 71,000 Americans are being killed every year. It is kind of important to our national security that we do what we can to, you know, interdict. You know, it's, it's not a DOD led mission, but, you know, we have capabilities that we should apply and help law enforcement and help the counter narcotics people. So that was another thing that was really, really important that we wanted to kind of get settled out. Well, you had a big agenda for what was only a short time. Um, so God got, got assets to South and Central America, uh, reinvigorated gold star families worked with the veterans administration to uh, recognize those that had served and had been exposed to toxic uh, chemicals. And um, wow. And then just tried to help give voice to those poor, those poor people that are down there, you know, screaming that something needs to be fixed that no one pays attention to and try to help them out. I mean, so. so. Good, good goal. Um, so, but let's, we got off the subject of January 6th and it's of such fascination to me, particularly. Um, on the 6th, did you watch the rally live or were you just getting reports? Yeah, no, it's working. It's working. Everybody asked that. You weren't watching the, the president's speech. It's like um, kind of busy, kind of concerned about some international uh, stuff. And, you know, no offense to anybody. I just didn't have 90 minutes to sit there and watch a political speech. I had people, there were people that are watching that would come in regularly and go, okay, this is what's going on. But no, I mean, I was like, you don't want your, you don't want your secretary of defense, like watching TV, you know, for 90 minutes or however long it was. I was, you know, really, really concerned about other things going on. So, you know, throughout the podcast, you know, you've talked a lot about just, you know, your respect for the institution, your goals to progress the institution as well and enact these reforms. But, you know, it's, it's, it, I guess it's so, you, you were thrust into this, this position of, 
you know, dealing with this January 6th insurrection. And I'm, I'm wondering if you had any like anticipation of what would happen on January 6th, knowing that Trump had spent, you know, months creating this false narrative about the election, now known as the big lie. Yeah, I mean, didn't take Nostradamus to recognize that there was going to be, uh, there was a potential. I mean, you saw it in June with, uh, with you know, the protests there. And then uh, the demonstrations, you saw there were incidences, incidents, excuse me, in December, January. It's pretty clear that there was a potential for wide scale violence. Yeah, totally was uh, locked in on that. Yeah. But but so, again, though, going back to the day when you how did you get the information of what was happening that day? Yeah, I mean, there are 25,000, as you recall, Jill, there are 25,000 people in the Pentagon that staff the Secretary of Defense. There are a lot of people that are paying attention. People would come in and go, all right, this is what's going on. I was with uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Melley, was uh, once we recognized that things were uh, going, getting out of control. Uh, we were all there and we had people reporting in and then uh, kind of typical uh, crisis action type thing. So can you describe that more? I mean, I know what you're talking about, but our audience won't necessarily know that. Yeah, uh, thanks. Really good point. I appreciate you doing that because like I said, like this part, I'm glad that we had this opportunity to educate. So uh, in the Pentagon, you have these operation centers where they get uh, their whole bunch of people in there that are tracking everything that's going on in the world, not just domestically. And so they're reporting in each service has one. And then, you know, army, Navy, air force, Marines, are not a separate service space force probably is a separate service. Now they probably have an operation center too. So they're tracking things. But in this case, the primary uh, organization was the army had, you know, primacy on tracking things because of the Army National Guard from the District of Columbia was involved and the Army and the Secretary of the Army and the Chief of Staff, the head Army officer, were in the chain of command. So they're tracking this very carefully and they would come in and give updates on what's going on. Uh, and then, you know, we talked prior about the things that were important. And of course, the big one was wide scale violence that was beyond the control of the police to handle. And so looking at that, when you mentioned a few days before that, you had issued, I think on the 4th, um, a memo about how the National Guard could respond and took on, not took on, you had the role um, for security and for the release of the, the Guard. So I'm talking about your memo where you said, you know, it, it requires my direct approval before you can use certain equipment. Yeah, right. Yeah, pretty standard procedures for the military. Absolutely nothing nefarious about it. Learned some lessons from when uh, the protests involving the murder of George Floyd. So had, you know, the army, as you know, Jill is a learning organization and is like, well, let's not, let's make new mistakes this time. Let's not make, you know, the same ones that, you know, very, very appropriate for, I think, for our army and our leadership to be that kind of, um, you know, introspective. So we recognize that there were certain things, but a lot of those things are pretty, several of those items on that list are very pro forma that go out for every order involving uh, use of National Guard uh, or, or mil I should say, military forces in domestic affairs. So yeah, that was kind of, everybody looks at that as some sort of um, horrifying plot. And it's, 
the essence of military planning that the senior person provides additional guidance. And the purpose of that, of course, is you want to make sure all the way down to the person on the street, they know the purpose of their their mission that day. And this wasn't a, this wasn't initially a fighting mission. It was a protective mission. So the way you give them guidance about the use of riot control agents, tear gas, the equipment that they wear, their use, their use of weapons, that's pretty standard because what that does then, it reinforces all the way from the Pentagon, all the way down to the, the, the person on the street that has to execute your orders. Like, okay, this is what we're doing today. This is not fight day. This is protect day. So I appreciate you asking the question. I hope that I, I'm trying like to educate people because there's a whole narrative out there that this was some sort of, you know, plot to undermine the effectiveness. And you have to remember, Mayor Bowser, who is the elected official that runs the District of Columbia, was very clear that she wanted a protect mission, not a fight mission, which, hey, I've supported Mayor Bowser on her efforts. So that's how that's, that's how that in, intent, they call it intent, is uh, is transmitted all the way down. Right. And so let's look at as events evolved that day, uh, they did get out of control. I don't imagine that you foresaw that it would get to the point where um, no. the, the Capitol would be breached and the Capitol Police overrun. Um, so and you're getting real time reports from all the military that is paying attention to this uh, while you're and I know how beautiful and dramatic the office in the Pentagon is for the secretary. Um, and then, you know, you hear the I'm sure you get a report that says the president has just told the crowd to march down Pennsylvania Avenue and to fight like hell at the Capitol at that moment. Um, did you start thinking, I may have to change that order, or I may have to not change it, I may have to give the permission that I said they had to get from me before they could use uh, more serious equipment. And I'm, I'm just trying to ask you now, what, what were you thinking when you heard, go to the Capitol and stop the steal, stop the certification, stop Congress from doing its constitutional duty? And you, as someone who took an oath to defend the Constitution, what was your reaction? That everything that we had planned for and all of our meetings prior with local law enforcement and federal law enforcement, had the law enforcement was very clear. There were 8,000 to 10,000 cops in the street that day. And they said, we can handle demonstrations of up to 100,000 people. So at this point, I'm like, cops still have it. Have it. We have not even come close to crossing the threshold. And therefore, there is no role of the armed forces at this point. Okay. So then let's go forward a little more. At 2.25 in the afternoon, which is 14 minutes after the Capitol had been breached. The insurrectionists had gotten in. They'd entered the building. That, that's. Do you know that for a fact? Is that when they, because I can't tell when they actually broke down and broke into. Because I, and I'm not being, I'm not trying to be dismissive. I can't, I still can't figure out. I looked at the New York Times. They had a really nice, they've got a video log and I'm still, and then I'll ask, I'll ask other people like, what time, did, what, when did they actually breach the Capitol? People still don't know. 
Do you, is, but I'm with you. I, I will totally agree with you about 225, 230 is when, when it's like, it's gone. Let's not look at the actual time. Let's put it in terms of an event, okay? Mm-hmm. At a certain point, Mike Pence was evacuated. And he wasn't evacuated. He stayed in the Capitol. He was evacuated from the Senate chamber. Right. He right. was put Got into it. protective custody and eventually was evacuated. Well, he's not protective custody, Jill. I think that's like a legal term, isn't it? But yes, I agree with you. He left the Senate chamber. What do you want to... I mean, uh, he, was, he, he was moved to a safe location. Agree. He was protected and moved to a safe location, um, taken out of the Senate chamber, which was in danger of being breached. Mm-hmm. So how soon, you know, what was the coordination between your office and Secret Service, um, who was taking charge of protecting him. When did you learn that he was moved out of the Senate chamber and that he was in danger? I don't, I don't remember. I, I probably learned from the news. Oh, okay. So probably, well, we all learned, I mean, everyone watching saw it happen basically. Um, right, right. Yeah. So, yeah. And then, you know, you saw, you saw the breach of the Capitol, whatever time that was. I, I'm kind of like 225, 230 is good enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so definitely at that, that would, I think you're, where I knew that law enforcement had lost complete control uh, was not so much. Well, yeah, I mean, when and here's the other thing. Everybody's like the terminology used is really pedantic. I know. But, you know, they talk about the Capitol was breached at, I don't know, you know, 115. No, that was like that's not a breach to me. That's when they came over the bike racks on the outer perimeter, and, you know, bad but at that point, I'm still not thinking. I'm like, cops, they've got three more lines of defense. You know, the cops got this. They said they had this. And uh, but when when the Capitol was physically breached and the woman was shot, obvi- at that point, it was like, OK, department, this is beyond the capability of local law enforcement and federal law enforcement. It's going to take a concerted Department of Defense response to assist assist key thing not take lead you don't want your army taking lead uh that's martial law stuff we weren't even close to that so supporting local law enforcement it was at that point where i was like okay we've this is a whole new situation the situation has fundamentally changed our assumptions and the things that people had said earlier are no longer valid and the department of defense and but i'll just be honest with you at that point i'm thinking like okay we got january 20th coming and so i'm our because i here's how it works i know that we have people that know how to do current operations the immediate thing we know how to do that like okay get moving and that's why at 3 304 gave the word get national guard mobilize the entire thing support local law enforcement but i'm already hopped ahead at that point and i'm talking to chief of the national guard and others going we now need to flood dc with uh, with national guard troops to reestablish control on uh, capitol hill and get ready for the inauguration okay so and that's a good point that i will follow up on but um it according to what i've read it wasn't until 441 which was three hours after the police at the Capitol said, we're in trouble, we need assistance, that you actually- I've been in plenty, I've been in plenty of gunfights in my life. And when you're in the middle of a, a horrible situation, you always um, are are desperate for assistance. And I appreciate that. I'm extraordinarily empathetic. 
and of those who were on the front lines that day. And I also have huge empathy for those that were in the chambers that day. And I know there's a lot of, a lot of fear and I, I literally understand that. Uh, but a 911 call does not equate to a meaningful request for support. And just like a 911 call, you have to ask what's, what's going on? Where are you? What's the situation? And oftentimes in these situations, you're, you get tunnel vision and it's natural. It's absolutely typical. It's a human response. And all you see is like your door, your little lane of what's happening. So that's why I get this like, oh, we asked for support at this time. I, I didn't receive those uh, requests. And I find them uh, very typical of how crisis happen and how people respond to them. So let's look at what the time frame was um, when you actually sent, approved sending troops to help. Um, 304. Okay. So what happened at 304 and why is it being reported that it wasn't until 441? Uh, politics, obviously, or it's either raw, bland, bold pol- politics, or it's a misunderstanding of how the military works. I suspect it's a little bit of a both, uh, but that's the military, you know, my classic line I use, this isn't Halo, you know, Master Chief does, doesn't teleport. There's a huge amount of work that has to go in because I have an obligation. I have an obligation when I was there and when I was a commander is when you employ force and you send service members into harm's way, you need to have a plan, even if it's quick, but you need to make sure that they know what they're doing. They have to go back to the armory. They have to, they have to get instructions. They have to coordinate with local law enforcement. Where are they rolling into? In, in a, in a, in a crisis, you just don't like show up. You have to coordinate with the people that own the area. And so it's like, you have to clear roads. You have to get buses. You have to get drivers. Drivers have to get briefed on the route that they're going to take. Oh, just follow the cops. That never works because guess what? Somebody will get separated. So you have to go through this very, very appropriate planning sequence. And then guess what? You need to rehearse a little bit. You're like, folks, this is what we're going to do. This is what we expect. We're going to come in on the Northeast side. Then did you, Jill, you remember National Guard has to get deputized. They have to get sworn in as law enforcement. Oh, what? Yes. Bus pulls up. Sworn law enforcement gets officer gets on there. Raise your right hand and repeat after me. And they deputize them and then get off the bus. So the other thing, too, when you're in a situation like this, you just don't want to like have two or three people show up, 10, 15 people. When the National Guard showed up, it needed to be this situation has fundamentally changed. Time for you to get the heck out of here. So that's why I thought that General Walker and the Army were very appropriate in taking the time to prepare their people for what they were doing. So when they showed up, it was game, the, the fundamental game has changed. So that's what happens. And th- that's why, you know, I, I appreciate the question because people are like, this isn't a video game. It's not It's not a Netflix movie. It, moving military forces and getting them ready and doing the right thing because we don't, it, it would be unjust of me and our leaders to send them in without some sort of preparation. So that's what's happening. And then you got the fear, right? 
Yeah, people are like, what are we going into? You want to, you don't want them to go fear in. Of the National Guard or fear? Yeah, everybody's fearful. Everybody's like, what are we going into? Leaders have to make sure that their their people know what they're going into because the last thing you want to do is go in there and, and do something inappropriate. See, there's a lot of, there's just so much stuff going on and it's chaos when you're in the armory. People are running around and, you know, hey, where's we need 15 more batons. And it, it's just really, so that's what's going on for, I assume, I wasn't there, but I, I think maybe if you ask somebody else, I'm pretty sure based that, that that's what's going on as they're getting ready to go down there. So 304, you give the word. I've seen that General Walker like, oh, I didn't know what I was doing until uh, you're going to have to ask him because I, that's not the way uh, I, I was raised. And that's not the way things typically uh, are supposed to work. So, it, I mean, obviously, you were at this point very involved in figuring out how to plan and execute what needed to be done. Um, did you have any? No, I was not. No, that's not the way it works. I, I give the, I give the order to, I give the order to execute and then it trickle, it goes to secretary of the army McCarthy, who then goes to general Walker, who's the head of the DC national guard, who then has his planning team throw a plan together and brief the people. And then it trickles all the way down through like 16 levels until the, the, the kid, well, might probably not a kid, but the National Guard person who's going to be going out there uh, knows exactly what they're doing. They know the rules of engagement. They know what they can do. They know what their purpose is, and they know their left and right limits. Did you have any opportunity during that time to talk to uh, the president or any other senior leaders? Uh, senior leaders, I talked to the vice president uh, after. That's another one like, oh, the vice president ordered you to activate the National Guard talk to Pelosi, talk to all the gang of eight, talk to everybody after 304 when I had given the order to activate the entire D.C. National Guard and support local law enforcement and federal law enforcement and clearing the Capitol. So, yeah, I talked to talked to them all. Didn't talk to the president, didn't need to. But you talked to the vice president when he was safe? I yeah, yeah, he called. He, he called. And what was his take on the events? Did he share with you? What's going on? He was... Yeah, Vice President Pence is extremely mission focused and like, Mr. Secretary, what do you got? I'm like, hey, first off, I was like, Mr. Vice President, where are you? Because I guess I didn't know because I asked him. He goes, I'm at the Capitol. Where do you think I am? I was like, oh, I'm sorry. Um, He stayed there with his family. So, yeah, I guess I didn't know that he stayed there until then. And I told him, hey, National Guard's mobilized coming in, going to come in and support law enforcement. It's on the way. Don't know when it's going to happen. It's going to take a while to prepare. Uh, stand by. He goes, okay, got it. But really quick conversation. He's a little bit busy. I was too. Yeah. So I, I guess, you know, I really appreciate you going through this because I think there is a lot of confusion about what happened that day. And I think specifically with what happened with President Trump, because it took him quite a long time to actually release the video and then condemn the mob um, that broke into the Capitol so you mentioned that you didn't have any conversation with him or that you didn't you didn't see the need to but did you realize that m- maybe you know his words could have impacted you know when the mob would have retreated or any of that I mean I had all the uh, my upbringing is you don't ask the boss for further authority or permission if you already have it do your job so I had absolutely no reason to do that the uh, what's going on there is spinning. I'm kind of tracking it. 
But uh, at this point, you really have mission focus on, uh, let's get this thing going, support the the police that need support and get ready for uh, the next phase of this, which is going to be a lot. Did you did you have any reaction? Oh, yeah. Go ahead. I, I, ahead, I just wanted to clarify because I think I heard a different question. I think what Victor was getting at was that, you know, eventually Trump did say go home, although he said go home. We love you, which is not exactly saying get out of there and stop doing what you're doing. Um, and I'm just wondering, you've you've already I've, I've heard you say on another um, another outlet um, that without Trump's initial words, without saying go march and go and fight like hell, that this would not have happened. And I think what Victor's getting at is even after it happened, he could have stopped it. But we're, we here, we read that he was loving watching it and he didn't come out. And I'm just wondering what your knowledge is of that, if you have any knowledge. I have none. I mean, I focused on what's going on. You know, I was completely taken out of context, which I sound like Mike Flynn now. I apologize. And I sound so bitter and angry and I shouldn't. I'm sorry, but this is obviously a very, very uh, concerned that everything's been so politicized. And, you know, you you brought it up at the beginning, like, hey, you know, we're still not going to do a commission. I had the most I had the I had the most lovely relationship with Governor Keene of New Jersey, who was on the September 11th commission with Lee Hamilton. And, you know, I heard him on TV the other night where he said, the true people that got the 9-11 commission through, and we remember this, everybody's like, oh, it was the best thing that ever happened. And, you know, birds were singing and everybody was, you know, hugging and singing Kumbaya. That's complete nonsense. The people that forced that commission to be established were the families. And he reminded uh, he reminded people of that, reminded me. And I'm like, wow, very important. So now, you know, Victor, you started our, maybe Jill, you started with like, we, we still don't have a commission. And so we're going to continue to flounder on with, with these issues. And so to answer your question, that was a roundabout way. I was probably, you know, giving some talking point or something, although I don't have any talking points. So, um, your question had to do with, uh, I f- even forgot what it was. So run it by me again. This question or, or the first one? Yeah, what was the last one? It was just what you knew at the time, uh, what you were thinking in terms of could the president have. Oh, okay. I know what I wanted to say. You know, I got, comp- you know, there, new information comes out literally every day about what happened on January 6th. So, you know, I've been. I, when I look at video now, because a lot of that video wasn't available when you refer to the comments I made earlier, which, you know, fine. And I stand by them. But here's what I was trying to make a point. And I had a, last time I was uh, on testifying, I had a nice friend who kept texting me because with Zoom calls on the Hill now, you can actually get, you know, my buddies, my buddies texting me as a political, he's like, Hey man, they don't understand nuance. I understand what you're trying to say, but it's not working. It's like, oh man, I thought we were up here to like have a discussion and not just like get yelled at. But that's neither hurt here nor well, it is here and it is there. But um, the point I was trying to make was when I look at 
when I see more evidence, there it was clear that there were organized uh, assault elements, cells of people that had shown up that day with one intent, and that was to cause violence. I don't know if there was some sort of larger conspiracy. The FBI will figure that out. So that's why I was trying to say, like, okay, President Trump did his thing on the ellipse, and he said all the things that you brought up. Now, my point I'm trying to make is there were those people – and we see them with the helmets, you know, and they're all stacked up going into the building and doing the bear spray. There were clearly organized elements. I don't think my, my sense is that there was an organized conspiracy before uh, that. Now, the collusion, I have no idea. That's probably why we need to have further and FBI is looking at it. So that was the point I was trying to make. It certainly wasn't helpful. But my what I'm trying to say, not well, I recognize it is it's clear to me that there was there were organized elements that were intending to do violence on the Capitol that day. And, uh, of course, when the march, all these marchers came in, that gave them a huge amount of cover. So the question is, would they have assaulted the Capitol without the cover of the thousands of people that came up from the ellipse? I don't know. So and, and you mentioned the 9-11 Commission um, and what it resulted from the families, and yet the January 6th commission, despite Officer Sicknick's family, uh, the officer who was killed that, yeah. as a result of the um, violence that day, that didn't influence the decision uh, of the Republicans today. It's a, it's a, you know, I know you don't want to do politics, but it is a different political environment than existed 9-11. Um, we are now polarized in a way that does not allow for sensible decisions and compromise. And so, um, so what are we going to do going forward? Is that a co topic? What do you guys think? I do all the talk and I'm tired of talking. What do you guys got? Well, we have you here as our expert to talk about that. So, uh, but I think Victor had some questions and one of them at the end is asking about the future and, and what could be done to make the defense department more responsive, more appropriately responsive or, to avoid this ever happening again, because I don't think any of us wants to see the Capitol defaced and uh, disgraced in this way. Again. Who's, who's responsible? Uh, who's responsible for Capitol Hill? That's the legislative branch, right? Now, isn't that a co uh, separate and co-equal branch of the of our government? And so you just don't get to show up on Capitol Hill like leadership owns that hill. So and. My great counterpart, who was the acting assistant, uh, acting attorney general, Jeff Rosen, brought that point up. And I thought it was very eloquent. It didn't resonate. It frankly didn't resonate with me at first because you're kind of in the zone. You're like, thank God they didn't ask me a question. I can take a breath, you know, and just watch the countdown meters, you know, get ready for the next uh, the next uh, question. But he brought that up very appropriately that, you know, you the executive branch just doesn't roll forces in or roll capable. You, you get invited on to Capitol Hill. And so I think there's some really important questions that haven't, I think, been adequately addressed yet is the role of senior leadership in on Capitol Hill that day. And my sense is there's a lot going on and I don't know what it is, but I'd be really interested because I think one of the questions is, you know, DC, DC Metropolitan Police did all hands on deck. Chief Conti, great, uh, just wonderful, wonderful leader. You know, in our pre 
calls about coordination and synchronization for January 6th. He's like, this is all hands on deck. Everybody's showing up that day. I don't know if that happened on Capitol Hill. So I think there's some leadership questions. I have the utmost respect and regards. I got to be privileged to walk around and talk to some of those great police officers on Capitol Hill and, you know, give them my thanks. But uh, I don't know. I haven't seen I haven't seen that sort of uh, insight or those sorts of questions being asked yet by what happened up there that day on their part. Before Victor asked some of the forward looking questions in hindsight, is there anything that you if you could redo the events of January 6th that you would do differently? This is going to sound like a cop out, but there were eight to ten thousand cops on duty that day. It is not in the nation's best interest to use your armed forces in domestic law enforcement, except as a last resort and when all other capabilities have been expended. And people will, what, don't you think that occurred? Yes, it did. And the fact of military operations is that, you know, you don't snap your fingers. Uh, I highlight our best trained active duty forces that are on uh, alert to deploy anywhere in the world have a requirement to be wheels up in three hours. The National Guard went from being out on checkpoints uh, on one side of town and being uh, helping clear the Capitol and supporting domestic law enforcement in, you know, depends how you how you look at it. And we still don't have, but it was quicker than three hours. So that's that's kind of one of the fundamental things. And at the end of the day, you know, it is not, that's what we have civilian law enforcement to do. And it it's a slippery slope if you start using, oh, well, military is easy button. They'll do anything. They do what they're told. I mean, that's their greatest strength, right? But let's not turn it into their greatest weakness either. And this country was founded on an aversion to a standing military. And to use them domestically uh, is extremely hazardous and extremely perilous to the republic. And so at the end of the day, you know, I try to step back and look at the big picture. Oh, could we have, you know, done something this way or that way? I, I, obviously, there's always things that you can do. And I was a special operator, Green Beret, in my first career, and we're the most hypercritical people in the world. And our 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 principle is always to improve our performance. So absolutely, there are things. But when you step it back and you look at the Secretary of Defense level and you look at the Constitution and you look at, our, at the role of the armed forces in the military, I, I really am, I, I stand by it. And I think, frankly, when we get through this period of this, uh, this antagonism and this hyper-partisanship, I think, you know, historians are going to go like, yeah you know, that's the correct role of the military. And and at the end of the day, you answer to elected officials. Mayor Bowser had a very specific request. Let's remember, if go ahead, let's, let's do a, a mind game, a thought experiment. If I would have put troops up on Capitol Hill before uh, January 6th, it would have been a constitutional crisis, probably biggest we've had since Watergate, I'm guessing, Jill. You, you live that one. Uh, but I that that was my thought. And I knew that and it's kind of funny now how uh, people that were so anti-military and so concerned are one the ones that are very adamant that somehow their military failed them. They, they don't blame the military. They blame me. 
I'll, t- I'll own it all day long. Good managers, good leaders accept responsibility for everything that the good that happens or everything that bad that happens. But at the end of the day, I'm very comfortable with the decisions that I made that day in in support of the Constitution. On, on that day or even going forward to since um, January 20th, have you been in touch with other members of the cabinet? Um, and during that time, did, well, first of all, during that time period between January 6th and January 20th, was there any cabinet meetings or any, not a meeting with the president, but did cabinet members speak to each other and express any concern about the events of that day? I think uh, every, I can only speak for myself, but you have to compartment these things and you're seeing this horrendous event occur, but you still have a job to do. So I think most of us were like, we'll, we'll work through this after we leave government and have a little bit of time. But right now we have an obligation to look at the next challenge. And that was, uh, you know, going forward, there were some still some significant international threats that uh, were out there. So there was still a lot going on. And so I don't think there was, I, I think there was a sense of like, wow, no, there was more than a sense. It was like, that was a really bad day for the, for, for our country. I don't think anybody said, oh, you know, no, whatever. No, everybody recognized, not everyone, the people that I talked to, the cabinet officials and others were very uh, disturbed and disappointed and concerned. Well, and you mentioned you were all, you were focused on January 20th, the actual inauguration. And I'm wondering because there was, um, so much going on in terms of public commentary about the president and what he had caused and the belief that he had been the direct cause of this terrible thing, whether there was ever any discussion among you in the cabinet of the 25th Amendment? No. I uh, I just want to quickly just touch on the period between January 6th and January 20th. Um, what were your main goals between that period? Um, obviously, it turned out, you know, the, the inauguration was very smooth. But I, I guess, what were your goals between that period? And, and I guess, um, your reaction to um, a lot of the increased presence of the National Guard at the Capitol, uh, Capitol complex? First and foremost was to deter the enemies of our country that meant us ill and intended to harm us. That was the fundamental focus. When you put 26,000 National Guardsmen, uh, National Guards people into uh, District Columbia, I was quite confident that the security situation had been resolved. And I was not at all uh, concerned that there was going to be a recurrence of the activities that happened on January 6th. Um, You know, before we before we. um... Uh, had this conversation. We we did a little bit research about your your time at uh, George Washington University, and um, we found out that you studied history and that you won an award for the highest GPA in the history department. And so you're obviously well versed with history and everything that's going on in our country right now. And I'm wondering, with the amount of polarization we have right now, what do you think is the best way to deal with January 6th? And I guess how much damage do you think the insurrection did to the legitimacy of democracy on the global stage? Thanks for bringing that up because all my buddies, the only reason I got that award is my 
two roommates graduated a semester earlier who were <laughs> a billion times smarter than I did. And so, so I was like the last guy standing there, probably only three people in the history department. So it was, you, you know. still have that honor to wear. It, it's still a great badge. I, I, I still, I must've put that in a resin. I wonder where that came from. Hilarious. I want it. I'll take 200 bucks. I need to pay back GW for that. I'm going to do that. I'm going to pay them back. You know, I think we, it was, it was serious and it was, uh, it's not unprecedented by the, the capital. I mean, the capital has been bombed a couple of times. I mean, let's, so let's, you know, I, as a, as a person who is an amateur historian, I would just love if we could just like dial it down and take a breath. And I get it from my family. Like, these are the worst times. The country's coming undone. I'm like, we fought a civil war where almost 500,000 American citizens died fighting each other. So let's go ahead and let, let's, let's just talk a little differently about this. And I think, I think democracy is ready for a reset. I think we're the, you know, remember the progressive era with TR and everybody took a long time. Those ideas that led to that recreation of our democracy. And, you know, we can go back to Jackson, we can go to FDR. We, you know, those ideas were planted, you know, 20, 30 years before, you know, healthy, you know, food and drug administration, you know, uh, you know, minimum wage, all the things that are known. And then when FDR with the New Deal coalition, I mean, so I think I'm hopeful. And you guys had uh, Lawrence Lessig on there. I'd like to meet him, by the way, because he I read all of his stuff and I just, you know, He's thought through this, and I think he has a great plan of action. So those are the kind of things. But I'm just going to be brutally honest with you. And this, we have got to break the the professional political class. And I am firmly believe that we have to go to term limits. That we have created. This is what I learned in this last experience: is our current political order is concerned about three things. Gaining power, maintaining power, or increasing power. And there's absolutely no, does ne- it's not necessary for them to be compromised because they have to go to both extremes. I think it's directly related to the current situation. We, ha- we have a breed of professional politicians. I think we have to go back and everybody's like, that would never happen. You know, Victor, you can yell at me. Chris, that would never happen. That means they'd have to vote themselves out of office. Well, I actually still have a pretty fervent belief in the goodness of American citizenry. And we like to say, oh, we're all a bunch of uneducated people that don't know anything anymore. I actually find that's why I love coming out to the Midwest. And I love going to Iowa and listening to people and asking questions and all the craziness that happens in D.C. that my, I get yelled at by my wife and children about, Dad, you got to or honey, you got to fight back. And you go out there and people are really this sounds like a political ad. It's not. People are really concerned about this country, taking care of their family in the future. So I, that's that's kind of where I am. And it was a horrible day. It was a horrible, horrible event. And we're in this really, really difficult political situation. But, hey, we hold the future in our hands. And, you know, this you guys aren't paying me, but I'm going to say it. You guys having shows like this where we can have these conversations and hopefully help educated a couple of people. I'm absolutely surprised because I had, oh, man, I had a person I work with came in. And it's like, hey, my aunt called. She was on uh, the West Coast. Very educated woman. She said, do you know this Chris Miller? 
he's going to overthrow the country. Can you believe this? Extremely well-educated, extremely knowledgeable about current affairs and the political system. And my my friend goes, uh, he's three, three doors down. Do you want me to go down there and ask him? I don't think that's going to happen. But what that resonated with me was the state that we are in right now where people are going to take everything to such an extreme and not have a conversation about it. And that's just why I love that, what you guys are doing. And I thank you for having me on. And I hope I didn't let you down. Um, but this is an emotional issue. And I'm sure I came across as shrill and crass and and some sort of like demonic figure, some sort of like, you know, death eater or something. Uh, but hey, it is what it is. But it would be nice if people recognize that, you know what, we're all in this together. Let's give it a whirl. And there's so I, I'm I'm optimistic, man, and maybe that I'm a cup half full person. You can yell at me and call me an idiot, and everybody will. But I'm not giving up. Just I mean, I think we're in, we we got a good future ahead of us, but we really have to get our act together, and we need to really be serious about this. You know, I I totally agree with you. I think sound we, like a sound like a complete paid political announcement. I know, Victor. You're like, oh man, geez. No, no. I, I was just saying. I, I don't I, have any notes in front of me. <laughs> exactly. No, I I totally agree with you, and I think. In this hyperpartisan world, it would be so nice to go back to a time when we did debate ideas instead of, you know, throw everyone into the extreme edges. And I'm wondering, you know, as someone who does engage in these conversations with whom people, you know, you disagree, what advice do you have for young people in this moment and in, in this hyperpartisan world? That is, thank you, because I do have a couple themes I try to bring up. And I'm like, what are we, who's going to serve right now? I mean, there is such an intrinsic value in public service. And I'm like, if you're going to get, if you're going to get annihilated, you're going to get publicly ridiculed, you're going to get threatened, you're going to, and, and your fam, pe- your family's going to be attacked. The only people that are going to serve are narcissists or borderline doggone sociopaths. I mean, that's that's what we're establishing as because who else is going to volunteer to do this? And that really worries the heck out of me. And that's why we we've got to appreciate the people that are willing to go into the arena. And I, I got all sorts of thoughts on that that really are very dark and concerning when you really think about it. Is this actually how the system they are trying to perpetuate itself. Like we want people like us that are narcissistic, borderline sociopaths that only care about power. Are we self-selecting that? Because I'm just, I just, I got to tell you, you know, my dad was a career civil servant. He was a cop and he was like, there's nobility in public service. And that really resonated with me. And maybe I'm just a dinosaur, but I still firmly believe that. And I tell that to my children and they roll their eyes but I just, I just really think that we've got to reestablish. I, you know, one of the crazy ideas, and it's been out there for a while now. And Victor, I talked to a lot of people from your generation, and nobody's shut me down yet. I'm like, I think we should have some universal service, and it's just not military. You can go work in environmental stuff. You can work, go work in healthcare. You can go work in education. Do 18 months, and you know, to, to I call it reestablish those bonds of, of goodness of our country. And you, it's I don't get you don't have to do the military if you want to do the military. Fine. If you want to do a little mini Peace Corps thing, that's fine. I really think that we need to. We really need. And all right, so dude, I kind of costed this out. A Ford aircraft carrier, four class aircraft carrier, costs 14 billion dollars a year. We're buying two of them. Let's just buy one. Let's just buy one. 
And let's go ahead. It sounds cliche and trite. And let's take 14 million, 14 billion will cover an entire program to, you know, expand AmeriCorps or some other thing. So that's kind of where I am. I think we've got to reestablish the bonds of connectivity with our goodness. I guess maybe the the last question is, you know, you're you're out of public service now. Would you ever go back into public service um, in the, in the future? If you were to be asked. My wife would. I mean, my marriage is more important to me, and I don't think we could go through that again. It was absolutely eviscerating, yeah. and you know, to be able to my talk about like the. <laughs> And I did. It was great. I was like, this family is about public service. This is what we do. And I, I quieted him down for about 20 seconds. Uh, but I don't think I can do that one again. And I would never say never. But uh, I think I really hope to have more of an impact on our national security discussions and discussions like this from the outside mm -hmm. and play a role there. But never say never, because at the end of the day, you know, this is what I do. I'm public servant, you know, and somebody called, I can't imagine anybody's going to call. So it's pretty, pretty easy for me to say, yeah, I'd be happy to do it. But it, it, it I'd, I'd have to, have, we'd have a family meeting on that one. And I think I would be uh, overwhelmingly uh, outvoted. <laughs> So thank you so much. This has been, I hope you've enjoyed the conversation. We have. I know we got off to a little rocky start, but I think it turned out to be a good conversation. And it might be interesting to have you back to talk about national public service, because I think it's an idea whose time may have come. And there's a lawsuit now that is um, challenging the mail-only draft, so that at least that might be something. I mean, I hope we never go back to needing a draft. But if there is, Same. I certainly am in favor of abolishing the mail only. Uh, but thank you very much for being yeah, here. Thank you so much. And thanks for what, hey, thanks for what you guys are doing. Sorry I got off a little angry, yeah. but uh, I'm glad that we had a conversation. And that's what you guys promised when you asked me to do this. And I, I appreciate what you're doing. And let's, let's keep at it. And if there's some way I can uh, help in the future, I'd love to. Thank you, thank you very so much. much.